Well, let's turn together to Psalm number 126. Pastor told me uh, the Bible study was uh, the first order of the day and that I could uh, pretty much uh, do what I felt led to do. And so I felt directed toward this 126th Psalm. And so I want us to focus there for just a few minutes this morning. And if I go over time and uh, forget to notice the clock back there, don't feel out of place letting me know it. You know, get my attention, tell me, uh, hey, stop, we've had enough uh, anytime along the line, and I will thank you for it, and probably everybody else will as well. So um, Psalm 126, let's read this psalm together aloud in unison. The 126th Psalm, this is the word of God. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Thus the reading of God's word. As I was growing up, a young man, the only time I would ever hear any reference to this psalm was when the last two verses would be quoted, especially the last verse, he that goeth forth and weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And always the context in which that text would be quoted was in regard to the soul-winning efforts as defined by uh, a religious movement that is, I think, probably unique to North America, Arminian in its basis and its mindset and outlook. Um, and the idea is if you go out and you weep, taking the gospel, you'll bring a harvest of souls with you. Now, I don't want to take away from that application or emphasis in any way, shape, or form this morning, but I sense that that application is not necessarily consistent with the context or with the overall message of the psalm. And it is the context and overall message of the psalm that we should desire to grasp and to know by the Spirit's guidance. So I want us to think for a few minutes this morning concerning this 126th Psalm and exactly what's being said here, which I believe goes far beyond the applications that were always placed upon it as I was a young man. You notice the title of the psalm. It says, A Song of Degrees. You know what that means, correct? You understand the, the idea there. It's, it's the, the 
it may well be translated a psalm of ascents, ascending in the sense of climbing up a hill, because these psalms, beginning with Psalm number uh, 120 and going on through Psalm number 134, are all given that title, a song of degrees or a song of ascents. And it would appear that these were the psalms that the people of Israel would chant together, would sing together during the time of their pilgrimage from their homes to Jerusalem for the three annual feast days that the people of Israel had uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. And they are called Psalms of Ascents because they could not go to Jerusalem without ascending, climbing the mountains. Jerusalem was there among the hills. This is why you find in Psalm 121, for example, uh, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. Well, the hills is where they were going as they made their pilgrimage from their homeland, perhaps in the Galilee area or the Negev area of the south. It was going up and you had to look up to see the mountains into which you would be going, uh, in the midst of which you would find the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, as we call it even today. And so these Psalms of Ascents were of a special use to the people of Israel as they would be journeying to worship together on the special days of Israel's annual spiritual religious calendar. And so Psalm 126 uh, is one of the psalms that speaks of the victory God had given to the people of Israel. It doesn't specify which victory it was. It speaks about deliverance, but we don't know exactly which deliverance it is focused upon. I think we are safe to uh, assume that any of the deliverances that God had given to the people of Israel were referenced when they speak about the Lord turning again the captivity of Zion, the people of Zion. Certainly, that captivity had been turned again when God brought them through the Red Sea out of the Egyptian bondage. Certainly that captivity uh, was turned again when the Babylonians who had carried them off captive uh, were replaced by the Persians and Cyrus uh, sent the people of Israel back and, and provided for their rebuilding their temple. Uh, whether this psalm was written before or after that we don't know, but what we find is they're rejoicing in the deliverance that they've received. But they're also praying that God might give them deliverance. And while we don't want to spiritualize any portion of scripture, yet I think there is a spiritual application to be made here. Namely, everyone who is saved from sin has been delivered from the penalty of sin and is being delivered from the power of sin. And we can rejoice in that deliverance. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. But at the same time, the people of God remain keenly aware of the fact that they are still struggling with sin. The lust of the flesh are there, and the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And so, 
I believe we can certainly pray the sentiment of this psalm in, Lord, thank you for the deliverance you've given. Now turn again my captivity, that I might be delivered from all of my sins and from all of the forces and influences of the flesh. So with that said, let's just look at the text itself. In verse number 1, it says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Pinch me. Am I really awake? Can this be true? That's the idea of this first verse. The Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, and it was the best of dreams that could ever come true. It was like it was a dream, which would suggest that the captivity had been intense, had been very difficult, had appeared to be insurmountable. Can it really be true, or am I dreaming? That's the spirit upon which this psalm begins. And you can perhaps imagine a community in Israel, let's say in the northern part, and they've got a multi-day pilgrimage to come as several families together by way of foot, perhaps with a beast to ride for some of them, finally to the mountainous area and up into Jerusalem. And as they're coming, they recognize that the freedom they have to do so is something they have because God had indeed delivered their forefathers from great oppression, delivered them from the Egyptian captivity, delivered them from their bondage in the wilderness for 40 years, delivered them from the enemies whose land they were to occupy in Canaan, Jericho, as they crossed the flooding Jordan on dry ground and then encircled that city and God gave it to them. They have a land of their own. And of course, so many of these things, I cannot help but think of Israel's state today, although in unbelief, the promises that God has made to them certainly seem to be in effect in the way they stand as a people this day. Well, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. And whenever God brings deliverance from any captivity, what a joy it is, what blessing, what thanksgiving he is due for such deliverance. Well, he continues there in verse 2. He says, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. You think about the laughter and the singing. I cannot but recall, if I could turn quickly to it, a Psalm, or rather Exodus, the 15th chapter, when God had brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15, at the first verse, then sang Moses, and the children of Israel, this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. 
He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom as a stone. The right hand, thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Well, you get the idea there that the people singing that are very happy. They are jubilant. They have triumphed. And who would ever have expected such a victory? Who would have foretold that the waters of the Red Sea would divide before them? Or that the flooding waters of the Jordan would be dried up for them to cross? Or that the mammoth walls of Jericho would be brought crumbling down? Or that the home light of the pagan Canaanites would be given to them by God? And as they consider the triumphs God has given, <laughs> their mouth is filled with laughter. It is a festive rejoicing. And what God has done, and what joy, always accompanies divine deliverance, joy to the soul as one is saved from his sin. Well, our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. And we've not read through all of that song of praise in Exodus 15, but we find at the end that Miriam has taken a timbrel, and the timbrel and the dance is there. In other words, they can't stand still. They are so thrilled and blessed. And from that time forward, once they've settled in the land of Canaan, and they make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast days, they sing about it. They remember it. Thanksgiving unto God for the deliverance he gives to them. But then it says as well there in the second verse, Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. Now this is one of the blessings of the Old Testament study, and that being that God so provided for his people, and so blessed them, and met their needs, and gave deliverance, that the nations around observed. And they said to themselves, Israel's God has done great things for them. You see, this was an age in history where every nation, every tribe had its own God, its own deity. And the Philistine had their gods. And the Canaanites had their gods. And all of these various Ethnicities of people scattered through the Middle East had their own unique state God, if you will, even though it wasn't states as we think of it today. And so they would look to their God. Oh, Baal, hear us, was the cry uh, when the Philistines uh, would, uh, when, when Elijah was on the mountain uh, facing down Baal and the enemies of God had infiltrated with the God Baal. Well, 
They had their regional uh, ethnic gods, but not a one of them had done for any of them what Israel's God had done for Israel. Not a one. Uh, the, the prophets of Baal were crying out, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And slashing themselves with knives, trying to get the attention of a God who had eyes but couldn't see and had ears but couldn't hear their cry. And Israel had a God without eyes, without ears and hands. We believe God is a spirit. As the Westminster Confession says, a pure spirit without body and without parts. And yet he hears his people and he sees his people. And Israel had experienced this, but the heathen observed as well. Do you recall Psalm 105? Just a statement there, since we're talking about the exodus from Egypt. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. Uh, that is uh, such a revelation about the place the people of Israel held in Egypt when the plagues came and when God was working for their deliverance. The Egyptians finally were glad to see the Israelites leave because fear had fallen on them. Fear because of what they could see Israel's God do. Oh yes, yes, Pharaoh's magicians could turn rods into serpents that were then devoured by Aaron's rod that was turned to a serpent. But it came to a point that the tricks and demonic powers of Egypt's religious class could no longer replicate the miracle of the plagues that was being sent upon them. And the Egyptians' God's limitations were very evident. And Israel's God, what frightful things he can do, they feared. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord, their God hath done great things for them. You remember when, after the 40 years of wandering, that Moses had died. Joshua was the leader who would bring them into Canaan. And the spies were sent ahead to examine the land and to observe Jericho. And as they crept into Jericho, spying out the land, they met a woman named Rahab. You remember Rahab, remember throughout scripture as Rahab the harlot. And as they spoke with her, this is what she said. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above 
and in earth beneath. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. And the people of Israel now on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, singing this psalm, are rehearsing these great things that God has done. Uh, You recall uh, from Joshua, the fifth chapter, that it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, there was fear among them. They heard this. The Lord hath done great things for them. And we recall the deceptive Gibeonites who came to Joshua with old shoes that were worn out and bread that was moldy, saying, we've come a great, great distance. And we want to make a truce with you. We want peace from you. And Joshua unwisely made a covenant with these deceivers. But the whole point is this. They were fearful of the people of Israel. Because in their minds they were thinking, their God has done great things for them. He has done great things for them. Oh, that my life might be so conformed to the image of Christ that each of us might be so used of God that when the wicked observe us, they know something about our God. He has done great things for them. Well, the people of Israel in verse number three of our psalm, they agree, (laughs) the Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. And so with that, you have the first portion of the psalm, the praise portion of the psalm. But second, we come to what I'll call a petition, a prayer portion of the psalm. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. The streams in the south. Now, the south of Israel is about as barren a desert as you can find any place on earth. Any of you who've been there perhaps and seen it, doubtless all of you have seen pictures, just barren, sand, desert, desert mountains. It's just a dead region. It was an amazing thing that when the Ethiopian eunuch was leaving Jerusalem to go back to his home and the pathway, the road went through that part of Israel that in fact they did come to a water there. And the Ethiopian says to Philip, whom God had brought to show him the gospel, here is water, almost like he's surprised. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And there um, he was baptized on that occasion with uh, what I think to be probably just a trickle of water in a small, tiny oasis there in the midst of the desert. Well, in that desert region, when rain does come, in torrents, on rare occasion, it immediately produces 
raging rivers and floodwaters. And that image is what the people of Israel ask for. Turn again our captivity as the streams of the south. You look across the landscape of the south and it's nothing but barren, desolate desert. And who would ever guess that those gullies would be gushing with water under any circumstance? And yet, the occasional storm and rain comes through and the flood waters and suddenly the streams of the south are gushing in those gullies seeking lower land to go into uh, the lake, perhaps the Dead Sea area. Well, that's their prayer. Lord, as that is the case physically in the south, now turn again our captivity. Whatever that captivity was, we're not told. But that's the prayer. Lord, what we've seen in nature, do for our barren souls and turn them from the parched barrenness that they are unto the lively and flowing, gushing waters of your blessing. It's a good prayer for us. For we are always in captivity until we're glorified. Oh yes, we're delivered from the penalty of sin and by means of divine sanctification increasingly delivered from the power of sin. But oh, that that deliverance might be greater. That all of my sins might be taken away. That all of my proneness to wander might be curtailed by a mighty shower of divine blessing. Well, then they go from the prayer to what I'll call a prophecy. Verse number five. And this is the passage I mentioned at the opening that uh, was so often quoted when I was a boy. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now in the praise at the beginning of the psalm, they talk about their captivity having been turned. They know what it is, perhaps passed down from their forefathers and from the biblical record they had of great triumphs. They knew what that was. They knew their forefathers had gone forth into great bondage and then been brought again out of that bondage. The Egyptian bondage for one. And so they recognized that indeed those who sow in tears will reap with joy. As they go forth, they're weeping, but God does not abandon them. He does not leave them. His own he will not forsake. But that fifth verse, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy, must be understood in connection with the sixth verse as well. He that goeth forth in weeping, bearing 
precious seed. Now in the application that I've always heard, the precious seed is referred to as the scripture, the word. And indeed, it is the precious seed referenced by that very title in the New Testament. But at the time of these events, the scriptures were not complete. And that designation of the scripture as the precious seed was not present. The precious seed that Israel was, shall I say, obsessed with, and I use that word obsession in a very good understanding and sense, was the fact that within their DNA, if I can put it that way, there was a certainty of triumph that surpassed any of the oppression they had experienced. They knew there was the seed of the woman, for their scriptures had spoken of that. And Moses, their leading first prophet, had recorded from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And those were not just idle words. That was a promise that indeed among the people whom God would deliver, there would be the seed of the woman. And they, chanting as they go to the feast, believe they are the people whom God has chosen within their very being. There is that seed of the woman mystery What is this? Isaiah the prophet would foretell that this Messiah, this servant of Jehovah who would deliver, would be born of a virgin. And the virgin birth is all wrapped up in that prophetic utterance. The woman's seed shall crush the serpent's head and the people of Israel, no matter what captivity they were taken into, they knew that they bore in their very existence the seed of the woman. But not only the seed of the woman, but they understood from Genesis 17, 18, 19, 20, that their father Abraham had also been promised a seed and that they were indeed the seed of Abraham. And that wherever they went, They were embodiments of the promises of God to Abraham for a seed in whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. What seed can be more precious than that? The seed by which all nations of the earth are blessed. And so again, no matter how deep the oppression, no matter the enormity of their trouble, Embodied in them was the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham of which such promises irrevocable had been made. And then you add as well that the people of Israel, even to this day, look to the greatest of their kings, David. And God had covenanted with David to give him a seed 
a son that would be on the throne forevermore. I remember a number of years ago, traveling overseas uh, for ministry in Kenya, and the first leg of the journey was from Philadelphia to London, I believe. And so on the flight out of Philadelphia, I was seated beside a young Orthodox Jewish couple with two young children with them. And it was a great opportunity to talk with them concerning what they believed and what I believed. And knowing, of course, that they did not recognize Christ as the Messiah, I asked the young man who was a teacher in a Hebrew school what he was looking for to confirm Messiah's identity. How would he know when his Messiah comes that it is his Messiah? And he stuttered and stammered some and didn't really have any answer more than saying he will be a son of David. The seed of David. A concept that yet abides among the people of Israel and surely did among these making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so wherever they went, they were the people of David. He was their king. And he was the one who would provide a king by his descendants who would be their great deliverer forever. Consequently, didn't matter who captured the people of Israel. Didn't matter where they were carried off into bondage. Within their psyche, if I dare refer to it in such terms, there was that consciousness we take with us, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, all three of which are one and precious, exceedingly precious. And he that goes forth bearing precious seed Weeping as he goes in his oppression, he will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He won't be abandoned. Generations shall still be given to Israel and they will return. And this is the joy of the people of Israel. And this, I believe, is the thrust of the psalm that they sang as they went. And ultimately, what we know is that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, is one. Christ himself. The Apostle Paul in Galatians, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. In the fourth chapter of that uh, uh, epistle, he further writes that when God promised Abraham a seed, he did so not in the plural, but in the singular, seed, which is one, which is Christ. When Paul began the epistle to the Romans, he wrote that it was of God's son that he was writing, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. What it is ultimately is this. 
the people of Israel are the vessel by which God delivered to the Gentiles a precious seed, even our Savior. And though the people of Israel doubtless did not perceive these things lacking the scriptures that we have revealed to us since then, yet they could see the shadows. (coughs) They could see these images of which Hebrews wrote of being the shadows of good things to come. And they could rejoice in the confidence of knowing the promises of God will be fulfilled. So, they rejoice and celebrate the victories God has given. They pray that deliverance might yet return as the streams in the south. And they can predict and prophesy with certainty that the promises of God will be brought to fulfillment. And therefore, they go forth weeping in their troubles, but bearing precious seed in their very being. And because of that seed, they come again with rejoicing. They won't be terminated. There'll be another generation bringing their sheaves with them. And indeed, the believers in Christ today are among that harvest, those sheaves which God supplies. Well, I think I've gone over time, and nobody stopped me. So it's your fault. Uh, you, you, you got what you uh, deserved on that. Let's give thanks to the Lord for all we have in Christ. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the precious seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, promised for our deliverance. And we rejoice in the deliverance from sin and wrath that we have. Who could dream of such deliverance of God entering human flesh in order to suffer death at the hands of sinners as a sacrifice for the sins of such as we are. And we thank you that because of that, because that precious seed is ours, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, that the gospel indeed shall be preached unto the ends of the earth And a host which no man can number shall be brought in to the triumph of Christ. Bring all of these things to our hearts and to our minds as we contemplate and read this psalm. We thank you for it and ask your blessing upon our time together in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.